The following podcast contains explicit language. Wednesday, December 21st, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The sons of Donald Trump will not be raising millions of dollars for conservation causes. I ask you, who loses? The answer is conservation. The boys, not including Barron, the boys, Donald and Eric Jr., are avid outdoorsmen, seen here, pictured atop the carcass of two majestic big cats in a spate of extreme conservation. The boys were shamed out of attending a gala where access to them and their dad, the president by then, and also a hunting trip with the, with the guys, would be sold off for half a million dollars to a million dollars, given, you know, if you're the grizzly-level donor or an eagle-level donor. Once news of this charitable endeavor got out, the Trump organization chastised those who would question them, but also due to the questioning, retreated from their obvious pay-to-play stance. Still, the boys, seen here holding up the chopped-off tail of an elephant, sorry, conserving the elephant's tail, were listed as honorary chairman for the event, still are, and the event still charging a million dollars to be a bald eagle donor. And to meet with unnamed luminaries could be Toby Keith, who, by the way, could be running the NEA by January 21st. Now, the Trump C charity, not the actual D charity, the word charity, as a fact-free, get-out-of-trouble-free card, Ivanka was set to auction off a coffee with a top Trump confidant and advisor herself, meaning herself, for $50,000, but it was okay. It was for charity. On The Apprentice, Trump would always match celebrities' contributions to whatever charity they were giving to, but it was revealed during the election that Trump's charitable largesse was drawn from money provided by NBC. Trump's own charity is being investigated by the New York Attorney General. It can no longer raise funds, in fact. The foundation, the Trump Foundation, has already paid fines and admitted wrongdoing in a number of cases, including a political PAC connected to Pam Bondi, the former Florida Attorney General and an early Trump supporter. Charities cannot donate to PACs, and anyway, they named the wrong one. The charity paid a fine to the IRS for self-dealing. Self-dealing means a charity can't use charities' money to help themselves, their businesses, and families. In other words, you can't pay a fine from your charity. The Trump charity was doing that. And it wasn't until Trump was hounded by reporters, reporters he yelled at and clashed with, that he actually ponied up the bucks for the veterans that he raised in a debate boycott event. Don't mention the Clinton Foundation. Don't mention the Clinton Foundation. That's fine. I don't have to because the Clinton Foundation is actually a real charity. The Clinton Foundation saved at least hundreds, most certainly thousands of lives, improved the lives of tens of thousands more. It's very highly rated in terms of accomplishment and efficiency. And every credible agency says it does a good job. And they're not the point. The important point here is how Trump uses charity. And the big question that I've been raising over and over again that the media needs to do a better job on is to ask the question, how does Trump get rich? Now, with the charity stuff, he's not getting rich, but it's illustrative. When the Trumps auction off access to themselves, and of course there is political capital to be gained in auctioning off access to themselves or somehow helping a big charity because big charities often have powerful people behind them. But I'm putting that aside. That's called power. I'm not up in arms about that. But think about not the Trumps, but the donors. You're a donor and you're asked to give big amounts of money to bend the ear of a president or his kids who are also his advisors and run his business. If you give the money to the people themselves, 
you have violated the law. But if you give the money to a charity, it's all fine. To the donors, it doesn't matter. It's still a bribe. What do they care who gets the bribe? If the politicians would rather have the bribe go to a charity than to themselves, shouldn't make a bit of difference to the donors because that is what we call pay to play. If the pay is to charity, it's not that much different than if the pay is to the politician, if the politician wants the pay to go to charity. Don't mention the Clinton Foundation, except that was the exact accusation with the Clinton Foundation. Then it was an unproved accusation. In the Trump's case, it's there. TMZ has the facts. The Trumps think charity saying, oh, it's all for charity, will blind the public or excuse themselves. But I suspect the reason that they backed off this pay-to-play charity endeavor is because it really didn't enrich themselves. So now let's ask the question, how does Trump get rich and look at another similar area? This is an area where Trump stands to become personally enriched, and he is not backing off. Here is his choice for Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin on Fox Business a couple weeks ago. We got to get Fannie and Freddie out of government ownership. It makes no sense that these are owned by the government and have been controlled by the government for as long as they have. In many cases, this displaces private lending in the mortgage markets. Now, since those comments were made, shares of Freddie and Fannie have more than doubled. They've gone up about 150%. And guess who owns Fannie and Freddie? Donald Trump. Or he did in his one public filing. He has up to $5 million in a hedge fund which invests in Freddie and Fannie. He said he would be selling his individual stocks, but he and underlings have offered no proof that he's actually done that. We got to take him at his word. He didn't say anything about mutual funds, which I've talked about in the past. He didn't say anything about hedge funds. And he canceled the press conference last week in which he said he would offer details of his business holdings and conflict of interest. He is stonewalled on what he's actually doing through surrogates. So on a charity fundraiser, Trump shows he's willing to be cowed out of pay for play. On favoring policies that will personally enrich him, Trump has not answered questions and offers no proof of what his actual finances are. So that answers, how does Donald Trump make money off of this? But if the question is, who stole 11 days in Saudi Arabia? Well, the spiel suggests that a trip back in time to the 1750s might have some answers. The spiel meets timeless. But first, Today, the star of, among other things, HBO's The Night Of. The character of Detective Dennis Box drove the action as we watched Riz Ahmed's character, Nazir, get worked over by the gears of justice. The system really was the antagonist, but Box was the very believable and in some ways even sympathetic face of that system. So I go face-to-face with actor Bill Camp, who's going to be in more projects in the upcoming year than you could drive a Zamboni over. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphe. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast.
Okay, let's begin with analogies. Sexy is to Ben Kingsley, as fantastic is to Eddie Redmayne, as 20,000 phantoms is to Ray Harryhausen. You get the theme here? As to as subtle is to my next guest, Bill Camp, among many, many things, starred as Detective Box in the HBO series The Night Of. And I believe episode two took its title from a description of that character, A Subtle Beast. We were, we were engaged in the bestiary. Hello, Bill. Good to see you. Mike, good to see you. So did you glean any character insight from John Turturro's character describing you that way? I had, uh, I, I had cheated already because I had read the script. So, yes. <laughs> so I knew he was going to describe the, me that way. But the moment you come across it, does yeah. something, a light bulb go off and say, okay, now Absolutely. I get it. It's yeah. sort of, uh, it, it kind of um, fed me throughout the entire series. Yeah. You know, every scene that had to be, had to be shot and told was that that description of Dennis Box was always in the back of my head in terms of how I was going to approach his interaction with whatever, you know, whoever he was talking with or as he is often in that story alone and thinking. <laughs> right. And trying to, you know, map out what actually happened in it, his own mind. It must be really interesting different uh challenging and great to have subtlety be the marching orders i mean it's right there in the script and it's, so often yeah. you probably ask not to or at least it's implied go bigger and it's like i have to be subtle you no. have to pick that up no 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 absolutely i mean it's it's yeah and and uh it's 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 something i should always remember <laughs> yeah you know because i will go over the line or I will do, you know, just a little bit too much. That's like, <laughs> now. And so, you know, the great thing was, is that I had somebody like, you know, Steve Zalian there every minute of every, you know, every second of every the take creator. that I did. And so he was always there. Yeah. Steve, the the creator and director. Did he direct all the episodes? He directed all of them, but one. Wow. James Marsh directed episode four. Yeah. So Steve was, you know, he was captain and uh and it was a great you know uh, he was always there reminding me of that subtlety this is why i i loved among the reasons i love night of is so in journalism and this phrase i think i heard it before there was this other hbo show the newsroom and they said let's present the best arguments of the other side the best arguments and that idea when applied to drama in a movie you can't always get it sometimes the villain has to twirl a mustache and you have to signal but this was really the best arguments if you will of both sides it wasn't we we knew the character the main character was innocent of the crime that he was accused of or at least we thought we had strong indications that he was innocent and you had a sympathetic defense lawyer played by Totoro but your character they could have made him a lot of things, which would have tipped the scale, which would have uh, affected our sympathies. But they and you made him just the best version of that character. And and also, it becomes it says something more about the system if the motivations of the character trying to put him away aren't called into question. If he's doing the best job he can do as he sees it within the system. Yeah. No, it just complicates and makes and, and, and gives the story a reality, which is more, which is deeper and more real and sort of not as easy in black and white to live in. Yeah. And, 
in the words that Richard wrote and the way that Steve was sort of guiding me, it made it a more difficult and mysterious <laughs> and challenging, you know, story to, I think, also engaging, obviously. Yeah. To participate in. This is Richard Price, right? The screenwriter. Yeah, and Price. he did Lush Life and he's fantastic, but he does ride alongs with cops. He probably knows more cops than, you know, the chief of police. Did you meet with actual cops? Did he introduce you to Danny? Was that part of how you got into the I role? spoke to a couple of homicide cops. I spoke to a homicide detective down at, uh, on 10th Street, which I think is the 6th Precinct. Um, and then I spoke to a retired homicide cop who came in and I you know, sat at the Edison Diner before it closed with him for a couple of hours and, and, and spoke with him. What yeah. were you looking for from those conversations? I just wanted to hear about their experience and... and the thing that I really got from from these two guys was because they were nothing like Dennis Box. Mm -hmm. They were nothing like uh, the guy that was written and created and that I tried to fill the shoes of and live. And, and uh, yet just the sort of day in and day out experience that it was it was for somebody that decided to do that with their life was what I really wanted to to listen to mm -hmm. and to get an idea as to that reality. Well, it seems like the character was really lived in. I mean, the first time you come on the screen, we don't get the sense that, okay, here's a character. It's like he just pulled in. He brings his 25 years or whatever of experience with him. It's all right there yeah. in his style of dress, in his mannerisms, in the fact that he's not at all over the top. You know, this is definitely a job that he's done hundreds of times. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was the goal. Yeah. Was to uh, not make it anything special because this guy has 30 years of experience or, I don't know, over 300 homicides that he's had to investigate. So do you often talk to, when, it, when you, it's available, do you often talk to a person who worked, walked in the shoes that your character walked in? Um, how big a role does it have to be for you to seek out an actual person to do your research? It doesn't necessarily have to be large at all. Um, it's something that I learned from uh, a director many years ago as an as an exercise. It was just something that was part of the process of rehearsing. He suggested to all of us, or actually made us, go and find the the professional in the real world mm -hmm. that had the same occupation that we were we were playing, whatever that may be, and spend some time with that person and interview them. <laughs> And and then come back and be interviewed by the rest of the cast and people working on the show as if I was that person. So I had to then kind of kind of live it on my toes with the information that I had that I had already you know accrued from some real person. Uh, so you know as often as I can do that when I can do that. I do it, and it's, I think, immensely valuable. Do you remember the first time where it really paid off? Yeah, it was in San Francisco. I was doing an, a new play, a premiere of a play uh, called 36 Views, and I was playing an art dealer of uh, ancient Japanese art, right? Something that, how much did you know about? Going nothing. Right. Absolutely nothing. I think I had like a, like a, what I thought was a jade, you know, little sort of <laughs> circular necklace, you know, <laughs> that I, you know, thought, thought was cool. And I had to be somebody that was, you know, had spent a lot of time, you know, 
over at Angkor Wat and, you know, and Thailand and East Asia and new Chinese history and Japanese history and Edo period art and all sorts of, you know, everything about it. And he was a fraud. Uh huh. He sold, you know, uh, fraudulent art, you know, fakes. Yeah. And so that probably means so he could travel in all of these different circles, really. And so I went and I found there was a guy who was not that. He was just an expert in Asian art. I went and I spoke to him and it, and it it had huge dividends for me because it was just something that that somehow I was able to kind of put on. It's hard to articulate, but I had information obviously that that I could fall back onto and use as sort of like a personal history even though it wasn't my personal history I could create something. So what do you do when you're playing Reverend Hale from Beverly in the Crucible? There are no current, you know, anti-witchcraft judges riding the countryside. Who do you talk to? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was something that I, I didn't seek anybody out. I did have people in mind that I knew from my past that I thought about. People from Massachusetts. Yes. Maybe people from Beverly. People from not far from Beverly. Wow. People, uh, I grew up in a small town called Groton, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. which is not that far from Beverly. <laughs> and not that far from Salem, really, either. And the school that I ended up attending, because my dad was a faculty member at, it was an, an Episcopalian school. We had to attend chapel every morning. We had interminable Sunday masses, you know, sit-down dinner, stuff like that. It was one of those schools. So there were five ordained ministers on the faculty or something, you know. And so over the five years and the years growing up, there were sort of images and people that I had in mind when I was trying to find, you know, John Hale. Were they austere? Well, one, well, it was interesting because it was kind of a mishmash mm-hmm. because John Hale goes through this tremendous change. Right. <laughs> if only yeah. we had more John Hales. But as I remember it, it's uh, Danforth who is the, the, the hard ass, the, the true, strict guy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Who really austerity. believes it. Right. Yeah. I, I know this because I don't, I hate to brag. I know you got Did nominated you play for him? Tony. I played John Proctor. Nice. In the Excellent. Oceanside Mike. High School production. Sweet. A lot of Long Island accents. <laughs> I saw I saw Goody Proctor with the devil. <laughs> a lot of that going on. <laughs> but but the words were great. And, you know, the fact that over the years, they still bring this up. But yes, Hale does go through that transformation. I believe Adam Hess, our John Hale, pulled that off almost as well as you did on Broadway. <laughs> I don't know. Great stones, they lay know. upon his chest. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I could do the hall. Uh, you are a foolish old man. <laughs> it was a bird. <laughs> I saw a bird with the devil. I see no birds. Yeah. <laughs> are you ascendant? Is this is? Are we living in Bill Camp's uh, heyday? You're in 2016. Know. I don't know. Uh, I mean, are, are you hotter? Do you sense you're getting more offers than you had ten years ago? I don't know. There. Uh, yeah, definitely, absolutely. No, that's very clear. Yeah, so it's like I, I had to, you know, I think I had to turn fifty, and my face had to go through the Chet Baker like transformation. Yeah. <laughs> so some I, people are born to play character actors; they're just too good looking when no, they're young. It's fantastic. No, no, that was hardly the case. But uh, it's exciting and it's it's great. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff happening. 
I also think there's probably more out there that like when you were on Law and Order, were there all these shows that we're seeing like the HBO shows and the uh, FX series, all these series that will embrace subtlety, that will go tell a long story that unspools over a number of episodes that don't necessarily have to have characters where immediately you get what they are just by, you know, the way they look. I think it's probably a good time for great actor, great actors like you. Certainly in television. Yeah. The only TV I've done is the HBO, you know, Night Of in the last, and Leftovers. I did a bunch of damages. But movies seem to be the thing that, uh, I don't know, I'm about to do three of them. I just finished two of them. I'm in Loving that's out now. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff, but mostly movies. Although, you know, I I do find this, and I I know you're in The Leftovers and The Night Of. Sometimes it seems like there's almost this HBO repertoire theater, Mm. repertory theater. Mm -hmm. Um, You see the same guys and the same things. But that's probably, it's probably me convincing myself of that. No, I think you're... You're accurate. I've noticed that myself. And uh, and I've also felt like I'm very happy and pleased if they would like to include me in their repertoire. Yeah. In their company. What if they're re- resurrecting sex in the city? You, th- you could do that again. Was that HBO? <laughs> yeah. Was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. I don't know where I'd like fit in that. I don't know actually. how I'd fit into that. <laughs> Samantha's got a new boy toy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a 30-year homicide detective That's doing right. a mashup. Yeah. A, 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 a balding, you know, <laughs> pot-bellied, <laughs> grumpy, you know, with the worst haircut in the history <laughs> Television, but in bed, his beastliness isn't so subtle to your. That is my Beth Samantha impersonation. Thank you. So, off the realm of playing different characters, you're narrating some hockey content now. Can you tell yes, me about that? Yes, no, I, th- uh, I think this is my third year, I think it's my fourth, but yeah, the road to the winter classic the road presented to the winter by classic. epics and uh, Ross Greenberg, you know, producing it and his brilliance and uh. And that is a great privilege to do. Like life itself, at the very beginning, no one realizes the game will someday feel like such a mystery. That why things happen the way they happen will become so vexing. That hockey is a puzzle everyone is forever trying to solve. I mean, the whole bench is saying deep. You gotta fucking put it deep. Play some fucking pride. Their search for perspective can take them far from their arenas. It was the night before Christmas. What did they like about your voice? Did they ever articulate that? Did Ross ever tell you? Is there something about you that sounds hockey? Really? No, I don't know. No. There's no Canadian-ness <laughs> to it. I don't know. I have no idea. I think, um, you know, it's best for me not to know. And I think probably Ross and Steve and Aaron are... Uh, are aware of that given all of their, you know, experience that it's probably best not to tell the talent what they like about it because <laughs> then, then we'll mess it up. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Bill Camp from HBO's Night Of, and he will be narrating Epics Presents Road to the NHL Outdoor Classics. Thanks a lot, Bill. You too, Mike. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. The nation of Saudi Arabia will be, on the new year, doing something it hasn't done 
actually acknowledging it is a new year. Two months ago, the kingdom dropped the use of the Islamic calendar in the public sphere. And January 1st is the first time they will be celebrating New Year's Day Gregorian style. Now, since the Saudis conduct business internationally, say oil sales, the private sector has long gone with the Gregorian. But now it is the whole country. And civil servants in Saudi Arabia say it's just a huge ploy to rob them of 11 days worth of pay. The Saudi Gregorian calendar is longer. And I got to say, the Saudi civil servants probably have a point. The Saudi courts, ever the iconoclasts, ever the hardliners, are resisting the move. Now, to my mind, this gives rise to the possibility of a criminal sentence to say 20 years in jail. But if he was sentenced in 1435, he could argue, hey, it's 2017. I have more than served my time. Of course, in Saudi Arabia, you could lose your tongue on appeal. But this got me to thinking about the Gregorian calendar. We live by it, but do we think about it? First of all, all credit to Pope Gregory XIII. He seems to have been a pretty competent pope. For instance, he had a kid out of wedlock, but only before he took his vows. Pretty good for a pope of that era. And he was better to the Jews than the pope before him. Although, and I read from the Jewish Encyclopedia, Gregory XIII while showing an occasional leniency, introduced a large number of severe restrictions. The Jews were prohibited from driving through the streets of the city, and they were obliged to send every week at least 150 of their number to listen to the sermons of a conversionist preacher, the terrible custom of keeping Jews in prison for a certain time each year, and of, and I just heard about this one, and of fattening them and forcing them for the amusement of the mob to race during the carnival when mud was thrown at them, is mentioned as an old custom for the first time during Gregory's pontificate. So I guess that means you can't blame it on Gregory. But throwing mud at the fat Jews. As an Italian Jew, I'm not even conflicted. That's fucking horrible. Anyway, Gregory XIII did champion the calendar, which was among the most serious things he did. Indeed, the Gregorian calendar was created via the bull of Inter Gravismas, and it gets its name Intergravismas because it starts with the phrase Intergravismas Pastoralis Officii Nostri Curis, among the most serious blah, blah, blah. So credit to Gregory XIII. But real credit should be given to Aloysius Lilius. He was the Italian scholar who worked out the calendar, worked out the Gregorian calendar. He aligned Easter with the vernal equinox. He made some tweaks to daylight saving time that we still use today. So this way, days wouldn't get all out of whack over centuries to come. Therefore, I believe this should be called the Aloysian calendar. Gregorian, there's already the adjective Gregorian. Gregorian chants, though those Gregorians were named after a different Pope Gregory, the first Pope Gregory. But Aloysian, that needs to be an adjective. Another Gregorian calendar note, Britain and the colonies were late adapters to the conversion. Really, really late. It took almost 200 years to get with the program. I guess they stockpiled a bunch of vocab word of the day calendars and didn't want to change them. Oh, what's this word, Harold? Aloysian. Anyway, they, meaning, I guess us, the nation, America, waited until 1752 to adopt the Gregorian calendar. Therefore, interesting trivia question. You ready? What signature event happened on September 6th, 1752? 
The answer, nothing. Nothing happened then. That day didn't exist in America and Britain. Britain and the colonies skipped from September 2nd all the way to September 14th. September 11th, never forget, except in 1752, you can't remember because it never happened. Aloysius Lilius never knew any of this, of course. He lived in the 1500s, but he also never lived to see the implementation of his calendar under Pope Gregory XIII. That papal bull went into effect in 1582, but Aloysius Lilius ran out of dates in 1576. Or, as they call it in Saudi Arabia, well, as they will up until next Sunday, the year 984. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube will star in the new Netflix season of Sex in the City, the Jimmy Chusable, in which Carrie Miranda and the gang move to Narragansett, but are resisted by townspeople who have deemed them to be witches. Just producer Mary Wilson's favorite episode is when the Reverend Hale falls in love with Goody Charlotte for her wholesomeness and blue blood charm. Executive producer of Slate Podcast Steve Lichtai is partial to the episode in which Samantha gets advice from Tichiba because she wants access to Tichiba's anti-aging potion. Chief content officer of the Panoply Network Andy Bowers always wanted to hear the line, My honesty is broke, Elizabeth. I am no good man. Uttered by Mario Cantone, Sex and the City's Anthony Marantino. The gist, heady, complex, analytical. We're such a Miranda. Or a Reverend Danforth. Umperu Deperu Duperu, and thanks for listening.